Jesus' name, we thank you so much. We thank you so much how you've been so faithful to us over and over again. How you continue to love upon us and show us the way, the righteous way of living. To show us the righteous one to save our very souls, Lord. So we come to you, Lord God, in humility. But we come bold, boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive help in the time of need. Uh, so, Lord God, uh, may uh, you touch our hearts with your word today. Allow us to be courageous uh, to make these changes in our life, either in behavior, attitude, or actions, Lord. Again, Lord God, we love you, and we thank you, and we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're in part three of our series in Philippians. Beginning in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to cycle back very briefly to verse 18. Uh, the reason being because typically uh, these verses, the way that Paul writes, they are connected with one another. And it's very difficult to break one without getting the contextual sense of the other. Today you will find that this is a very interesting message, uh, probably uh, a message that some may deem appropriate for another venue, but not on Sunday morning. But yet, in God's wisdom, in his infinite knowledge and desire for us, that what he wants of us is to be whole and he wants us to be complete. Therefore, uh, including the message uh, that you will engage in today, we cannot shrink back from it either. So therefore, we come with the assurance that God is with us and nothing can ever separate us from that, behold the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then here it is, that pivot point. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So it's good to expect prayers to bring deliverance. Amen? Right. This is why we pray. So Paul says, verse 19, for I know that your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that 
all this together that it will turn out for my deliverance. What deliverance is he speaking of? Paul wanted deliverance from his current situation, and his current situation was sitting in Cook County Jail, sitting in prison. So he has not departed from the discussion he began in Philippians 1, verse 12, that we walked through, about informing the saints concerning his current situation and why he ended up where he was. As you recall, he was imprisoned for the advancement of the gospel and its resulting boldness among the saints of God. But we also recall how uh, Paul, he began to talk about, yes, I'm in prison, but let me get to the gospel. Remember that? Yeah, I'm in, uh, I'm in jail, but uh, let me talk about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it's moving forward. You need to know this, right? Uh, right now, you don't need to know about me and how I'm feeling. What you need to know is how the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forward. He didn't talk about his health. Talk about whether someone was upset with him or how he was treated by the guards. And this sparked curiosity within us. Because, as you heard last time, uh, we oftentimes hear horror stories that happen behind bars. Yet Paul's primary concern, as we heard, was the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was not concerned about his well-being or where he was. And then he said he rejoiced. Why? Regardless of the method in which the gospel was being proclaimed. Remember he says that, that some proclaim the gospel out of truth and others proclaim the gospel out of pretense. He said, you know what? It doesn't make a difference. Jesus Christ is being known. Now today, Paul's mindset is slightly different because Paul says that I rejoice in his circumstances because, you know, uh, I know I'm sitting here in prison. Now he, he goes to himself. Uh, now one thing that you will notice as you look through this next section, in fact, this next section goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And as you know, that uh, anytime you see things that are repeated in the Word of God, oftentimes those are things you need to take note of. So one of the things that happens, really beginning in verse 19, all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, Paul talked about how he thanked God earlier, right? Uh, as he thought about uh, the, the believers, and he talked about the advancement of the gospel. But one thing that's repeated over and over and over again in this next section from 19 all the way through the end of the chapter is the word I. See, now uh, Paul, he is drawing attention to himself for a reason. And as we go through the passage, I just circle uh, the word I, and you'll see exactly what I speak of. 
So Paul says that, look here, I, I, I know that I'm sitting in prison, but it doesn't make a difference because I am in a win-win situation. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have gone to the riverboat. I'm not sure how many of you have been to Las Vegas to gamble your money. But one thing I do know is that when you go to the riverboat, you spend your money on lottery tickets, when you go to Las Vegas, that uh, you never say to yourself, man, I'm in a win-win situation. That I'm going to win no matter how much money that I put down. Uh, no one says that. Unless maybe you plan to cheat when you get there. But I think the vast majority of people that uh, when they gamble their money, uh, that they're not quite certain whether or not if they're going to win. Because most people I know, most people that I know, they walk away losers. You know, I have to admit to you, I've been to the uh, riverboat before. Uh, I think I shared this with you years ago, uh, that I went with a friend many, many, many years ago. And I went... And uh, I'm not going to tell you how much I spent. Yeah, I'll tell you. It doesn't make a difference. Uh, the amount of money that I planned on spending at the riverboat was $5. Yes, it was. $5. And would you believe I walked in there and I won $5? I'm like, I'm in a win-win situation. Thank you, Lord. So I'm like, hey, let her ride. Boy, uh, that $5 that I won, I quickly lost. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm square. I still have $5 left, and that's all I'm planning on spending. So I went ahead. I said, you know, I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to take the $5 that I originally used to gamble, and then I'm going to go ahead and see how much I can win. And guess what happened? I lost it. And you know what I did after that? I sat down and looked out the window. That's it. I said, uh-uh. A friend who took me there told me, go ahead and gamble. So I said, no, 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 no. I said, you're not getting ready to get me caught up in that thing. Not going there. Uh-uh. Five dollars is it. And I've never done it since then. Amen? I know you all haven't done that either since then. Amen? Uh, what? I didn't hear everybody. Okay. All right. Well, God bless you now. Amen. All right. Keep it together now. But Paul does admit that, he says, it's not only the prayers of the saints, right, that is going to work out for his deliverance, but he says also it's going to be because of the help of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus Christ, he says, which is another way of saying, as you see in Scripture, the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of the Lord, or God's Spirit, or as we know, the Holy Spirit. In all these instances, uh, this is in essence speaking of the Holy Spirit being actively involved in life, actively involved in ministry. Can you say that about yourself? About the work of the Holy Spirit, and how He is doing a work in your life regardless of your circumstances. So Paul says that Christ is honored regardless of the outcome of life. Especially when Christ is central 
to the way that you live and operate. Philippians 1 verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And there it is. Paul is thinking, this great apostle, he's thinking that maybe this just might be it for me. Maybe I've come to the end of the road. Maybe God is done with me. So he says that uh, whatever is outcome, whether it is through life or whether it is through death, he would not and could not be ashamed because Christ is honored in his body. He's saying there was a lot of things going on in his physical body. And now, right before, it was about the advancement of the gospel. Before, it was about the saints. But now, Paul is saying, you know, I'm not certain right now. Maybe now he's beginning to point to the fact that there are some realities that he's had to face. Either because of being imprisoned or because of the ravages of getting old. Well, I'm not sure, but we can be certain that there were some struggles on the horizon for him in which he now seems to be admitting to us, his readers. Earlier we thought that he was too focused on the gospel even to bring up any issue about who he was or how he was feeling uh, physically or emotionally. But now we plainly see there was an emotional impact on him even though he doesn't quite phrase it that way. You know, regardless of how strong you appear to be, regardless of how strong that I think that I am, Every person, you and I, brother and sister, mother, father, cousin, every person is subject to the emotional and physical tolls placed on us during life's journey. One day, uh, we're going to have to uh, shed this, uh, this mortal coil that we have and move forward. One day, uh, yes, it's going to be the story about us. Yes, brothers and sisters. So Paul seems to be spent. Coming to grips with the uncertainty of his future in the hands of the Romans. And in a sense, that's no difference from some of us who uh, may have to come to grips with health concerns. It's hard. It's difficult. If you've ever had a major health crisis confrontation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've ever been there. What happens, you are unsure about tomorrow. 
unsure about the week, unsure about the future. You know, I would love to stand here and tell you about the success of every person that has faced a similar challenge in their life. I would love to tell you about how the saints of God consistently overcame every health scare or obstacle thrown their way, but that is not the way it goes on this side of heaven. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Some were sawn in two. Sure, there were people attempting to sell you the snake oil. <laughs> the snake oil. Of saying that if your faith is strong, and then any mountain that you will face that you can triumph over, it doesn't make a difference. But that's simply not true all the time now, is it? <laughs> that's not the whole story. And frankly, the logical outcome of such theology. That if everyone is always healed, if, 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 if everyone is always comes from the brink of disease, uh, the logical conclusion of that uh, theological uh, uh, misdeed is the fact that no one would die. No one would die. But look around you. Look to our north, where people are being ushered in day in and day out. Some make it out alive, some don't. Look to our south, the very end, which is the end for many, where lies the cemetery of many bodies, many people that we once knew. There may be life on one end and help on the other, but eventually everyone has to take that journey from here to there. The wages of sin is death. Yet believers don't experience spiritual death, but we most certainly will experience physical death unless Jesus returns ahead of that. Seneca said in a play called The Phoenician Woman, anyone can stop a man's life, but no one his death. A thousand doors open onto it. In other words, uh, yeah, you can see a person that's living and you can stop their life. Yes, you can do that. But if you, uh, if God has it in for you that this is going to be the end of the road, no man, no woman can stop that from happening. Why would you preach such a message like that? You know, uh, even as I consider this, I consider my own mortality. You know, who wants to see me or who wants to see you lying horizontal, uh, hopefully in God's house, right, uh, uh, saying good things about you, ready to put you six feet under? Who, who wants to hear about that on a Sunday morning? Let's just come in and rejoice and have a good time in the Lord.
Yes, all of this is the consequence of sin. And I hate it. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. I dislike going to funerals. I dislike people getting sick and, and coming to the end of life. I dislike it. This is not how God had desired for humanity to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God created us in His image. He created us to live, to worship, and to create uh, 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 an earth full of worshipers. But we messed it up. Yes, and I say we messed it up. I know God delivers. I've been delivered from the brink of death. Consider this. Remember when Lazarus had died and they had come to Jesus and Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep. They said, well, Jesus, uh, we're not sure because right now he stinketh. In other words, he has reached uh, a point of no return. Uh, how are you going to make him, how are you going to heal a man that's already dead? But Jesus, he came and he says, I am the resurrection, I am the life, right? And he said, Lazarus, come forth. You know, he told those clothes, those barrier clothes that had him bound up. He says, loose him and let him go. And Lazarus came hopping out of the grave alive. Alive. But where is Lazarus today? Man. Lazarus had to do a second time. Lazarus had two funerals. Eventually we must face these challenges. But because we are in Christ, we can face it in a way that is uniquely Christian, which is reassuring and encouraging. So whether in life or death, Paul realizes he is in a winning situation, knowing that in his body, his actions, that he has honored the Lord. In verses 20 and 21, pick up verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This seems like a bold proposition, and a bold position to take, and some would even say arrogant, because how in the world can you say it is a win-win proposition? I say bold and arrogant because this man of God has taken a position that he, has, uh, that he has done or is doing everything in his power through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to honor Christ. Have we ever been so sure of any ministry we do? Have we ever been so sure of the spiritual warfare that we walk through? Have we ever been so sure about anything that happens in life? And I know that oftentimes we do our best, uh, but do we actually do our best? Most people I know would probably admit they could do better, 
either in what they do or the way their heart engages in life, in relationships. Yet, there's always that level of doubt, that doubt that always comes, right? And we read a God's Word that says that, right, if you need something from the, uh, God, you ask Him, but without doubting, Call the man who had told Jesus, Lord, I know that you can do this, but increase my faith. There's always just that grain of doubt that's there enough to keep us trembling, to keep us uncertain, unknowing about what happens next. But Paul moves on to tell us that we know he has done his best. Therefore, he says it is, a win-win proposition, uh, that, that you are in a win-win position if you are in Christ. It doesn't make a difference where you are, how you feel, that if you are in Christ, you are in a win-win position. Amen? Doesn't make a difference. It, it may not feel like it, but if Christ is alive and his word has come forth that says, yes, I'll be with you always. And when he says always, how long is Always. Always, you are in a win-win position. In other words, no matter what happens to him, it will be a picture of divine success and the will of God. And that's one thing that he is certain about. We've seen Paul and how he sacrificed himself for the sake of the gospel. We have seen how he worked with his own hands in order not to be a burden to the church. We have seen how he mentored Timothy and many others uh, before uh, becoming fully in all that God has called him to be. We saw how he was mocked and made fun of all while trying to save, trying to save the very souls of those who were making fun of him. Now he says, for me to live is Christ." This is the point in which we say that life in and for Christ is the ultimate purpose for all believers. At least it should be. But Paul says living is to Christ, which means he has repeated opportunities to lead people to Jesus and to help mature others. So therefore, uh, what we say is that how do we live our life do we, lead, do, we, do we lead unbelievers, that is, to Christ? Do we help uh, mature believers in Christ? What is the purpose of our life? You see, if we have that understanding, that outlook in life, we know that things will be good for us. Philippians 1, verses 25, 26. Paul says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You see, the Philippians, they would be happy. Jesus would be glorified, and there would be joy all over the place. Yet deep down inside of Paul, uh, Paul says his desire is just to leave, depart this life. Verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. He says, for that is far better. So Paul, he's speaking from his own personal perspective. He's saying, for me, for me, I'm not talking about for you. I'm saying, for me, my desire is just to leave. How do you convince someone that it's better for them to remain with you instead of letting go of life and going home to be with the Lord? 
How can you convince them that the best place for you is not, no, not with the Lord, but here with us? That's hard. We should admit to ourselves that having someone we love around is really what it's about. It's really about the fact that we don't want to live without them. Because if they were to depart from this earth, then we would feel alone. While that is really not true for everyone, it is a truism, a truism to us. Because that's the way we feel. That person that we have engaged with for life, be it mother, father, sister, brother, a friend, whoever it is, you know, uh, uh, they have become our crutch. That person we have grown attached to is really a part of us. And if or when, right, if or when they are snatched away, it makes us feel helpless without hope in some cases. You've heard it before in the midst of deep grief and pain. What will I do without you? Now, this is not to disparage those who go through traumatic experiences because it does hurt, and it hurts deeply. But thanks be to God that believers understand that this life is not all there is. In fact, on the other side of eternity is the place where the disciples of Jesus Christ, where we really live our fullest. Now, I need to address those who would suggest again by preaching and teaching such a message as this is contrary to the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, no, 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 no. I tell you, this is part of the victory that we have in, in Christ, of the fact that we are in a win-win situation. This is victory. We are more than conquerors, that Jesus has conquered the grave for us. And if Jesus has conquered the grave, guess what? You also, I also, we also will conquer the grave. The grave is not the final word. Jesus is the final word. You have heard sayings like the word Bible, right? The word Bible is an acronym for uh, basic instructions before leaving earth. Someone told me that. If this is true, and to a degree I also believe it, I would submit that the Bible, God's word, teaches us how to live from the cradle to the grave. So it tells us how to comfort one another when we need comforting. God instructs, instructs us uh, on how to raise our children. He instructs us in areas such as singleness, uh, marriage, uh, morality, and even dealing with contracts to a degree. So why is it that believers are so afraid of engaging in preaching and teaching that deals with one of the most challenging aspects of living? Jesus spoke about it. Paul spoke about it. Job struggled through it. Ecclesiastes identifies with it. And all of the saints walked through it. So why is it that when it comes to the church, we're supposed to act like it's not even there? In some ways, talking about death in the church is like talking about sex with your children. 
Only talk about it if it's necessary. Absolutely necessary. But other than that, avoid it at all costs. But part of being a part of God's kingdom family means walking in ways of confidence, knowing that you will always be in the hands of the Lord who will care for you and who will comfort you. Safe in the arms of Jesus. So Paul said he was hard-pressed between remaining with the saints or to continue to grow them in the faith or to be at home with the Lord. In fact, if you really think about it, think about the language that we use for death to show you how skittish that we are. Well, she's gone home to what? Be with the Lord. Or they have passed what? Away. Or old brother so-and-so has finally kicked the bucket. Or can you believe they have expired? These are all euphemisms uh, as we attempt to ease the blow of death. Paul says, I really want to be with the Lord. I really want to be with God. That's where I want to be. So is it when we talk to those who are expiring, is it about them or is it about us? We get attached to people when we should really be attached to God. Verse 24 says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. In other words, Paul says, I see how this can really help you. If I stay, if I hang around, I see how this can really help you. But I think it's good that all leaders depart to be with the Lord. If they don't depart, then all of us will begin to assign them some type of spiritual properties that are only fit for God himself. <laughs> I recall one leader that I admired so much passing away many, many years ago. And in my mind, you know, I, I didn't think this at the time, you know, when, when, when he was alive, I never thought this, but then when he passed away, I thought, I have to admit to you, I thought it. And I remember saying to myself, I didn't think he was ever going to die. See, I was assigning spiritual properties to him that only belong to Christ. It's like any professional sports team that may have had a run for several years, like the NBA championship. You know that if everyone remains healthy, and if everyone remains level-headed, their dynasty will last, won't it? The Golden State Warriors had their run as their dynasty, I believe, has come to an end. Reluctantly, I have to admit, it has also happened to the Chicago Bulls, the Boston Celtics, the L.A. Lakers, the Detroit Pistons, 
All of them had dynasties and all of them were great at a period of time, but then their dynasties came to an end. Of course, there are many others. What I'm saying is that it all had to end because as those great teams, that they were only as great as God would allow them to do to their own limitations. But there is one great legacy team that I know of. I know of a legacy team that will continue. I know of a legacy team that will never falter. I know of a legacy team that even though some may get hurt along the way, that God will always bring in a suitable substitutes. I know of a, a legacy team, and that legacy team is the body of Christ. We are part of that legacy team. And even as we pass away one by one, that God brings in a brand new whom he empowers by the Holy Spirit that continues the legacy and the greatness and the name of Jesus Christ all through eternity. And then to top it off, you know what happens to those professional athletes, right? They get hurt. They try to fix them up. They only last a small period of time and then they're gone. But for us, as we pass away, we know that God will heal us. God will raise us from the dead. In all uh, of our weaknesses, He will make strong. If you wear glasses, and I know some of you wear glasses, uh, that if you didn't have those glasses on, you might need a little stick to walk around. I'm not saying who, I'm just saying you. I know some of you that if you got around grass, that you probably need a little mist that you need to breathe on the inside to keep your lungs open. I know some of you, you may have to walk a little bit slower because every time you make a step, you say, oh. But one day, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dynasty of the body of Christ will continue. It will never be broken. And that which you are a part of if you are in Jesus Christ. And for that, can you say amen? You see, for us, I know that some of this was hard to take. But uh, when you are going through uncertainty, that as a believer you must persevere. You must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because at the end of the day, guess who wins? Jesus wins. You know what? I, I'm not sure about you, but if I needed to put my money on anything else, I'd put my money on the Jesus team. Amen? Because I know that Jesus wins. Amen? Jesus wins. Amen? Jesus will be victorious. His dynasty will last forever. Uh, he's on the throne of David and is promised by God and it will happen. That's where I put my faith. That's where I put my hope. What about you? Yeah, uh, death is a hard thing, but persevere because he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Amen?
Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we give our life to you.